When preparation for the table of the Lord, I invite you this evening to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 13. The Gospel of John chapter 13. Last month around the table of the Lord, we began looking at this chapter, but only verse 1. We saw that John 13 through 17 records the last days of the life of Jesus. And in these five chapters, we have the ministry of Jesus in private to his disciples. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. Follow along as I read these verses from John 13, beginning in verse 1 through verse 17. Hear the word of God. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, And you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things... You are blessed if you do them. Well, we saw last time around the table of the Lord that the first half of verse 1 gives us the historical setting. We considered the historical setting, but then we saw the great love of Jesus for his own. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And we saw this was a wonderful statement about the great love of Jesus for his people. What great love he bestows on unworthy sinners. 
This is the undeserved, unmerited love of Jesus Christ for sinners. And so we saw the electing love of Jesus. In verse 1, we see that in the phrase, having loved his own. Why did these disciples belong to him? They were his own. Because he chose them to be his own. He chose them out of the world to follow him. This was the electing love of Jesus. We love because he first loved us. And any who belong to him, not only these disciples, but any who belong to him, who are his own, are his by the sovereign electing love of God. It is not because of us. It is not anything in us. It is not our merits, any supposed goodness. It's not ultimately our choice, but because of his choice, of us by his sovereign grace. And we see that in the phrase, his own. But then we saw the enduring love of Jesus. That having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And we saw that this word, telos, to the end, sometimes means time-wise to the end. Sometimes it means to the fullest, fully and completely. And while he loves us to this great degree, this word here probably does mean to the end, to the very end of his earthly life. He was still caring for them, loving them, but that is a picture of his love throughout all eternity. When he sets his love on sinners, it is an enduring love that never ends. And so we might think that with the cross before him, that his thoughts would be upon himself, his agony, his pain, his bearing of sin upon himself as a substitute. And yet John tells us that he was still intent on loving his disciples to the very end. And so he retreats with them to comfort them and instruct them. They were his by sovereign electing love and they would remain his by his enduring love. All those who belong to him are the objects of his great love. And so we've seen last month the electing love of Jesus, the enduring love of Jesus. But this evening as we come to the table of the Lord and to prepare our hearts for that, I want us to see the exemplary love of Jesus. That's a hard word to say, isn't it? Exemplary love of Jesus. We see that in verses 2 through 17. The word exemplary means serving as an illustration, serving as an example, a pattern deserving imitation. What would happen next is Jesus would wash the feet of his disciples, those who were his own. And this act of washing the disciples' feet was illustrative and it was to be imitated. It was designed to illustrate something. So Jesus gives an example and an illustration of his love for his disciples, which is typical of his sacrificial death. That is, it points to what he does here, points to, typifies, and illustrates the cleansing of our sin, which his death accomplished. So it illustrates what he was about to do on the cross humble himself and shed his blood for our cleansing and our washing. And then it would also serve as a pattern, a model for us to follow. Not for the forgiveness of sins, 
but to love one another and serve one another, even as he has done in our redemption. So washing the disciples' feet is a symbol of the cleansing that he would accomplish for them in his death and an example of servanthood that they were to follow. It was symbolic. It typified the cleansing from sin through his humiliation on the cross. And this is made clear in the conversation in verses 8 through 11 between Peter and Jesus. But then we see in verses 12 to 17 that it was more than that. It was then an example for them to follow. They were to wash one another's feet. That is, they were to exhibit their love for one another by serving rather than being served. And so this evening, first consider the situation or the scene in verses 2 and 3. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. Now, all those words sets the scene in the situation. It was during supper. Now, this was probably not during the Last Supper when Jesus instituted what is called the Lord's Supper. That is still yet to come. It will happen in the upper room, but that's not yet. And John mentions here three realities surrounding this event of Jesus washing their feet. Judas was going to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands. And Jesus had come forth from God and was going back to God. These three realities surrounding the situation made this act of Jesus even greater and more profound. In looking at the situation, first consider Judas. Judas Iscariot was present and participated in this event. In other words, Jesus washed his feet too. And yet verse 2 tells us that the devil had already entered, had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, put to betray him. Jesus, or excuse me, Judas fully succumbed to the desires of the one to whom he belonged. Judas is not usurped by the devil. Judas's heart was in complete harmony, though, with the desires of the devil. And we know from other passages of Scripture that Judas was motivated by greed, among other things. And this demonstrates how a person can identify with Jesus Christ, can hear the truth of the Word of God over and over again, can even say he believes the truth of the gospel, and yet can be nothing more than a hypocrite and a deceiver. It's frightening to consider all the privileges that Judas had, and yet how he was so unchanged by them. This really illustrates the depravity of the human heart, that apart from grace, sovereign grace, this is where we would all be. Jesus would even have his feet washed by the Lord Jesus. He would have such close contact with Jesus and true disciples, and yet he would betray the Lord. Brethren, we should not be surprised when this happens today. When there are those in the visible church among us who have all these blessings, you might say, who have all these benefits of hearing the gospel, 
of fellowshipping, in a sense, with the people of God, identifying with the people of God, but yet not truly converted. We know from the rest of Scripture that there will be those among true believers in the visible church who will profess to know Him, but as we saw this morning, by their deeds they deny Him. And in the end, will show that they truly did not know Him. Ultimately, Judas demonstrated that he was not a true disciple of the Lord Jesus. He did not belong to Christ. He was not his own, although no one knew it yet. But Christ, he knew it. The mention of Judas and the very presence of Judas in the situation draws a sharp contrast between the self-centeredness of Judas and the selflessness and humiliation of Christ. The presence of Judas made this act of Jesus even greater, more profound. Jesus would even wash the feet of his enemy who would betray him. So the first reality John mentions in this situation is the presence of Judas, the betrayer. The second and third realities magnify the person of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come forth from God and was going back to God. This tells us certain things about who He is. He was the eternal Son of God who was going back to the glory of heaven and yet Jesus would wash the dirty feet of sinful disciples. This demonstrates the great condescension condescension (laughs) and humiliation of Jesus that he would stoop to wash their feet. So look at the situation. Jesus had all authority. He was the eternal Son of God who came from the presence of the Father. He was going back to the Father in the glory of heaven. And the one who would commit the wicked act of betraying him was in their presence. And yet Jesus would wash their feet. What humility. What love. So this is the situation or the scene. But now look at the act itself, beginning in verse 4. It tells us that Jesus got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with the towel with which he was girded. Notice all the details that are given. Every step in the washing of their feet is recorded with great minutiae because it so struck them. J.C. Ryle wrote this, The minuteness with which every action of our Lord is related here is very striking. No less than seven distinct things are named. Rising, laying aside garments, taking a towel, girding himself, pouring water into a basin, washing, wiping. This very particularity stamps the whole transaction with reality and is the natural language of an astonished and admiring eyewitness. John was there. He was one of these disciples. And it must have so astonished him that it etched into his mind every single action of the Lord Jesus. They were eating supper and then he gets up. 
He lays aside his garments. He takes a towel. He girds himself. He pours water in a basin. And they're all quiet and watching. What is he doing? He begins washing their feet and wiping their feet with the towel with which he was girded. Now, you would ask the question, why would they need their feet washed? Well, feet would get dirty on dirty roads. And they needed their feet washed when they came in. It was hospitable in that day for a host to do so for guests. It was hospitable, but it was not only hospitable, it was also humbling. And therefore, it wasn't practiced very often. And when it was practiced, often a slave in the household was responsible for such a humble and base task. And it was certainly true that a person of high position would never wash someone's feet whose status was beneath them. And yet Jesus lays aside his garments, that is, his outer garments. He takes a towel, he wraps it around himself, he pours water into the basin, he washes and wipes their feet with his towel. The picture here is not one of a gracious host. The picture that Jesus portrays by his actions is that of a slave. He girded himself with a towel. This was the clothing of a slave who was ready to clean and serve. The scripture tells us that the Son of God laid aside his glory and became a slave. Philippians 2 says, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus laid aside his glorious garments in order to become a slave. The king becomes a slave. And as Jesus himself said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So this was a very humble act, an act of a slave but he would be humiliated again. He would be stripped of his garments again. But it would not be in a private place to wash the feet of his beloved disciples. He would be publicly crucified to wash clean all of his own by his blood. In washing their feet, Jesus typified and pointed to his humiliation on the cross. But then we see the reaction. Peter's reaction demonstrates how shocking this was. Verse 6, so he came to Simon Peter. This is etched in the Apostle John's mind as well. And he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? So he came to Simon Peter. He may have washed the feet of other disciples first. We don't know for sure. If he's washed the feet of other disciples first, they were unwilling to object. Maybe they were in shock. They didn't understand what's going on, but they didn't say anything. But of course, Peter has no problem saying something. Lord, do you wash my feet? In the Greek, the word order again is important. It emphasizes literally 
Lord, you, my feet, wash. My feet, Lord, you, my feet, are washing. Certainly Peter understood that Jesus, the one whom he had confessed as the Son of God, shouldn't be washing his feet. If anything, it should be the other way around. So he got that part right. He knew that there was something shocking about this, that the Lord, the teacher, would so humble himself and wash his feet. But Peter's words not only demonstrated shock and surprise, but it was also an objection. So Jesus responds to him in this way in verse 7. What I do you do not realize, but you will understand hereafter. In other words, Peter, you don't realize what I'm doing. You will understand later. Therefore, just do what I say. The response of Jesus makes it clear that the act of washing their feet had a greater significance. It pointed to something yet future. Namely, it pointed again to his humiliation on the cross to wash their sins away. That should have been enough. But Peter persists. Peter said to him, verse 8, Never shall you wash my feet. Peter was known to put his foot in his mouth. Having already put his foot in his mouth on many occasions prior to this one, someone has said that Peter only opens his mouth to switch feet. (laughs) Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, Peter, this is more than about etiquette and social norms. This humiliation of Jesus and washing their feet, again, was a sign of what he would do on the cross. And Peter needed to embrace the humiliation of Christ. In this statement, he understands he's the Lord. He's the teacher. He's the prophet who has come, the one who has promised. And he has confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He'd embrace that. But Jesus had been teaching them, this one who's come down from heaven must go to a cross. He must suffer many things. And Peter needed to embrace the humiliation of the Savior, or he would have no part with Jesus. So Peter objects, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus is in essence saying, Peter, only the person who is willing for me to wash him will have eternal life. Only those who embrace the humiliation of my cross will have a part with me. There is no redemption apart from from embracing the humiliation of Christ on the cross. To man in his natural state, it's a stumbling block. It's foolishness. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Peter needed to be reminded of that. He needed to be reminded, you're going to see me humiliated on a cross, suffering and dying. You need to embrace that by faith. That is the means by which I will save sinners. Our Savior had to suffer and die. For it was on the cross that He bore our sins in His body. Some have called what Jesus was doing in the washing of the feet of His disciples 
A parable of redemption. A parable of redemption. Peter, if you don't embrace my humiliation, you'll have no part with me. Certainly later, Peter would think of that and think, yes, I understand now. I realize what he was doing. He was showing us his humiliation, typifying his humiliation on the cross. But Peter still doesn't completely understand. So what does he do? Peter does what he seems to always do. The pendulum swings to the other side and he responds in the extreme. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. I wonder if the other disciples were rolling their eyes thinking, here we go again. (laughs) Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. If you go to a person's house, you would take a bath before you went there. But then you would walk to their house, and therefore you only needed your feet washed. Not your head. Not your hands. But Jesus in this response is speaking more than about feet. When he says you are clean, again, he's speaking of salvation. Verse 11 demonstrates that clearly. It says, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Speaking of Judas Iscariot. He says, you are clean in verse 10. Speaking of salvation, Jesus uses the situation to speak of spiritual cleansing. He who has a bath refers to total cleansing by the blood of Jesus. They were the ones who were completely clean. Speaking of the thoroughness of the blood of Jesus, the completeness of the salvation that he gives in his humiliation on the cross. So Jesus is simply washing their feet as a symbol of his humiliation on the cross, which secured their justification. So then Peter succumbs. Jesus washes his feet. He washes all the disciples' feet, but then we see the exhortation. We could call this the application. Jesus exhorts them and applies what he has just done by teaching them a very important principle. It is an exhortation to serve. And this exhortation to serve one another is based on his own selfless love and service to them. Look at verse 12. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again. Again, Peter finally submitted to Christ and allowed him to wash his feet. Now the act of servitude is over. Jesus takes up, take, takes off the servant's towel. He takes up his outer garment again. And then he goes back to reclining at the table with them. I wonder if anything was said. I wonder what their expressions were. Surely such a selfless act The humiliating act of the Lord Jesus changed the whole atmosphere. They may have been thinking, now what? There may have been a silence of their own shame and conviction. 
So Jesus, having washed their feet, speaks to them. He exhorts them and He applies it to them. The exhortation begins with a question in verse 12. He said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Now He isn't wanting them to simply answer, yes, we know what you did. You washed our feet. (laughs) He's wanting them to truly consider and really think about what He has just done for them. The full significance of this symbol of foot washing was yet to be comprehended. Again, they would realize what it fully symbolized later. What he had done for them was a picture of what he would do for them on the cross. Their master would become a servant. Their Lord became a slave. And on the cross, he would be humiliated in order to save them. He would cleanse them, not with water, but with his own blood. And he would not just wash their feet, but cleanse their consciences and souls. And in this way, washing their feet effectively points to the cross and the washing away of sin, the cleansing of sin that would take place on the cross. And washing their feet demonstrated his sacrificial love for them, a love which led him to selflessly serve them. But this was not only a picture of their justification. This would have implications for their relationships and the relationships of all who would be redeemed. His sacrificial love for them brought them into a a unique relationship with one another. And this relationship was to be characterized by the same selfless love and service that he had shown them. Later, recorded in the next chapter, he would say to them in John 13, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, that's not a new commandment to love one another. But what's new about it is that he says, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in asking the question, do you know what I have done to you? He wants them to consider the exemplary and instructive benefit of his actions. He's saying, do you know what I've just taught you by what I've done to you? They needed to be stirred up to consider how this applied to them. And we need to consider this as well. So then Jesus proceeds to explicitly explain what his act of washing their feet meant for them, practically. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. To be thoroughly instructed and exhorted by this act, they first needed to consider fully who had washed their feet. You call me teacher and Lord. He was the prophet and the king who was foreshadowed by those offices in Israel in the Old Covenant. And as Peter confessed in John 6, verse 68, you have words of eternal life. The disciples had begun to understand that Jesus was the teacher, the prophet sent from God. He was the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. 
and he was Lord. They had come to understand he was Lord of all. He had walked on water. He had calmed the sea. He had healed the sick. He had raised the dead. So he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And it's right to use such titles of Jesus. He acknowledges that he is teacher and Lord, prophet and king. But then he says in verse 14, If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The the line of reasoning is clear. Jesus argues from the greater to the lesser. You call me teacher and Lord, and that is exactly who I am. Then understand this. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, you can't refuse to humble yourself to love and serve one another, can you? Since I myself have so served you in this way, and then even more when they would realize the magnitude of his servanthood, that he would lay down his life for their sins. How could they and how can we look at the humiliation of Jesus Christ and then refuse to do the same for one another? Again, the ultimate humiliation would be on the cross. How can we look at the cross and then refuse to love and serve those for whom he died? Maybe the disciples were looking at each other and saying, well, you want me to wash his feet? And that's how we think about it sometimes. Yes, I know Jesus died for me. He so loved me, but you want me to love him that way, this person? You want me to humiliate myself for this person's sake? And this kind of attitude is in complete harmony with our sinful hearts. But yet we have regenerated hearts. Saved by grace and dwelt by the Holy Spirit and made new by the power of God. So we should consider this and say, if Christ so loved me, an undeserving sinner, how can I not now wash the feet and serve those for whom he died? The fact that Jesus gave them this instruction demonstrates the need that they had for it. They needed it. But so do we. We all need to be exhorted to serve one another. There was clearly a need for the disciples to be instructed concerning these things. They they argued periodically about who would be greatest in the kingdom. And they were more concerned with their power and prestige than serving we're the same way. We would rather be served than to serve. We would rather be loved than to love. We would rather come to church and receive rather than to minister to others. We do prefer in our sinfulness prominence over obscurity. And we do tend to think that some things are beneath us. And one of the manifestations of our pride is the refusal to take a lower role. We don't celebrate demotions, do we? You don't go home and say, guess what, honey? I got demoted today. You see, our sin and our pride necessitates that we be instructed and exhorted by Jesus in this area and how we need the instruction of Christ. 
Because nothing affects our relationships more than our pride. And instead of pride, we need to put on what the Apostle Paul would exhort the church to put on in Colossians 3, verse 12, a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. They needed this example of humility and servanthood. And we do too. But someone might say, you might be thinking, but do I have to? Can I be a Christian without doing that or being that extreme? Well, notice what Jesus said in verse 14. Notice the little word ought. You also ought to wash one another's feet. Do I have to serve others? The answer is yes. This is an obligation. The example of Jesus binds us to do the same. And so in our sinfulness, we say, okay, if I have to, I have to. If I must, I must. Give me the towel. No, if Jesus did it willingly and with great humiliation and even joy, then should it not be our delight and joy to serve others? What Jesus is commanding is not just sheer obedience. He's telling us to look at what He has done for us, for our salvation. And then He's commanding and requiring voluntary, willful, joyful service to others. And this takes the same humility that Jesus, the teacher, displayed. Humility always precedes love and service. So Jesus says in verse 15, For I gave you an example that you should do just as I did to you. If you're struggling with pride in this area, just look to the example. Consider who Jesus is and what He did for you. And then compare yourself with Him. Are you greater than He? Do you deserve more prominence than He? Brothers and sisters in Christ, one way that we overcome such sinful pride is to look to Jesus. How can we look to the cross of Christ and yet be so prideful? How can we trust our crucified Savior and yet arrogantly refuse to love our brothers and sisters in Christ? Oh, how we need examples. We need symbols. We need pictures. It aids us in understanding. Well, Christ has given it. He gave an example that they should follow and that we should follow. So then in verse 16, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. He keeps driving the point home. He keeps instructing them with various methods, asking them a question. Here, an aphorism, a short principle. A slave is not greater than his master. Everybody would agree. The one who is sent is not greater than the one who sent him. Everyone would agree. Those are true statements, short principles. 
What is understood is what Jesus already said. I, the Lord, am greater than you. I, the one who sends you, is greater than you. And yet this did not preclude me from washing your feet and serving you. And if you refuse to follow my example, if you do not purpose to follow my example, then you're acting as if you're greater than me. You see, no one can legitimately argue that any act of humble service is beneath them when Jesus has performed an act such as this and then ultimately an act such as he did on the cross. Are we greater than our Lord and Savior? Because when we refuse to love one another and serve one another, we're actually saying in our pride, I'm greater than Jesus. So Jesus, knowing that these are things that can be understood but hard to do, he says in verse 17, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. We know these things are true, but we must do them. Knowing is not good enough. Obedience is what Jesus requires. Conviction isn't enough. Repentance is required by Christ. We give all kinds of reasons why we can't serve others. There are often nothing more than excuses to cover up our pride and disobedience. Some of the most miserable people are those who know the truth and don't do it. But the happiest people are those who know the truth and do it. That's why Jesus said, you are blessed if you do them. For blessedness comes from serving, not being served. And so as we come to the table of the Lord this evening, we need to consider what Jesus has taught his disciples here in this situation in the upper room. But we need to understand it's been recorded for us in sacred scripture because it's applicable to us as well. So let's bow our heads for a moment before we come to the table of the Lord and let's meditate on these things and think about these things. So with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, just consider what we've just heard from the Word of God. Consider those in your home. Consider the believers in this church. If Jesus, the teacher, the prophet, the Lord, the King, the King of all kings, so humbled Himself, And ask the question, how can I wash the feet of others? And how can I be like the Lord Jesus Christ and so humble myself to serve others? Take a moment to confess sin before the Lord this evening. And not only confess, but to repent before the Lord of pride and selfishness. In doing so, as you look to Jesus, the Savior who so humbled himself that he obeyed the Father and went to the cross 
for your redemption. 